Well, good morning. I promise you that about eight weeks ago, Pastor Greg sent me an email with the title of the sermon and the text from Proverbs, and I thought he was joking. Because the way, we'll, we'll get to it in a minute, but Greg is just so consistent, he has such a very dry sense of humor that I, he could have been joking, I don't know, because I followed up and I said, are you joking? And he, he didn't say anything. So we stuck with it and we have it this morning. So here we go. Before we jump into the message, I want to uh, give you a little bit of a warning. The text we're looking at today speaks about marriage and includes the most intimate physical details about marriage. So this morning, if I was to put a rating on our message, I would call it a PG-11 type deal. And so if you have young children with you, um, I would encourage you to drop them in our children's ministry um, because we are, we're going to go for it this morning. In September, Jenny and I will celebrate 14 years of marriage. And while to us, this seems like a long time, we are both in awe to be in a church with so many who have been married 30, 40, 50, 60 plus years. It's inspiring. Yay, give yourselves a round of applause. If you recall a little bit of my story, my parents divorced and I'm very sensitive to the fact that when a sermon or a pastor gets up to talk about marriage that not everybody in the room can identify. In fact, biblical verses and sermons like today have the potential to leave out a large and growing part of both our congregation and both in our world around us. And so if you are single, uh, divorced, you've lost your spouse or never been married, please know that this week you especially have been heavy on my heart. And I have been praying for you and that this morning you would meet Jesus in a very real and profound way. Because I believe that what is in the Bible is true and not only for those who are married here today. And more than ever, we ought to be carefully looking about how the Bible speaks about marriage. And friends, let me tell you what many of us in this room already know, is that biblical marriage is incredibly difficult. Biblical marriage is not for the faint of heart. It is not easy. And this morning we're going to look at some very specific details as to what marriage is to be about and how, is it, how it is to function. This is not a morning that we're going to talk about what marriage isn't, but rather what it is. And I believe that the Lord will meet each one of us in a very real and profound way. My marriage is different this week as a result of being in God's Word this week. And on Friday, I had this really beautiful encounter towards the end of the day. I took Henry. We, we had the day off as a church. Thank you. And I got to take Henry to his swimming lessons. It's at Waterworks on Foothill where Marie Callender's used to be. And it's a couple pools. And, and in the pool he was swimming in, there was a, one of those uh, lane dividers. And on one side, there was a group of, of, of elderly women in the pool exercising, uh, moving around. And it was really... Uh, noticeable the contrast for all these kids splashing on one side and this group of women on the other. And I sat down in a chair next to a man who I later found out was married to one of the women in the pool. And he just kind of leans over next to me and says, isn't she striking? Which started a conversation, a brief one. They'd been married over 60 years. He said he still looks at her and he just, his heart jumps. He said, I've always liked watching her swim. 
And I went, thank you, Lord. Thank you for a moment and image of everything I believe we will talk about this weekend. Because what we're going to do this weekend is look at one text in Proverbs 5. It is not a comprehensive text to all that marriage is, but it speaks to some very specific parts of marriage that are ever so important for what a biblical marriage is. So will you please stand and join me in the reading of God's word. Proverbs 5, we will begin in verse 15. I am going to read a couple verses past what are on the screen. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline they will die, led astray by their own great folly. This is the word of God. You may have a seat. Before we jump into the specifics of what we just read, let me give us some little context of what's happening in in this particular proverb. In the book of Proverbs, which is what we are in uh, this summer, there are some chapters in Proverbs where these uh, statements, these short, pithy statements that observe life and speak to how real life is to be lived and how wisdom is to be understood and what is true in this world, there are verses, there are books in Proverbs where there will be two or three verses that are disconnected to maybe the next two or three. It's a collection of sayings. But in Proverbs 5, the whole proverb serves as one teaching. It has a beginning, it has an end, it has an audience, and and it's very clear when you read Proverbs 5. In fact, it's pretty clear when you read all of Proverbs, right? These are written from a male perspective. And so we find out very early on in the proverb that, that there's a son and there's a father who is speaking to his son, and he is urging him to pay attention to his teachings. In fact, it begins, my son, pay attention to my wisdom, turn your ear to my words of insight, and, and what happens in Proverbs 5 is there's this personification of what is wise and what is unwise, what brings destruction and what brings life, and that personification is found in women. And you will read in the first part of Proverbs 5 that there is a, this strange woman. And this strange woman shows up from Proverbs 1 through Proverbs 9. And a very quick and easy kind of un. Not a, not a great way to read Proverbs 1 through 9 is to say the strange woman is a prostitute and just leave it at that. No, no. The strange woman it moves around in all of these Proverbs. It's not necessarily one particular kind of woman. This is, it talks about a woman with enticing appearance, enticing words, enticing actions. Sometimes it does speak about a woman who, who is very sexual in nature. 
But, but to understand that this is not necessarily from a male perspective, this isn't a, the writer talking about how women are like this. In fact, the other personification that happens, what is good, what is beautiful, what brings life, what brings, what brings wisdom, is also personified in a woman. In this particular proverb, that's found in the wife, and it's specifically the wife of one's youth. And again, a very quick reading. You can see how people have read proverbs like this over history, and said, well, look at the Bible objectifies women. I mean, it says there's this wife of the youth, and it just talks about her as a, as a, as a doe or a deer and a cistern. Friends, I just want to argue something, that we don't see any objectification in this proverb to women. So when the proverb talks about the woman being a cistern, water is essential to life. And so the woman, this wife that he speaks about, is one with dignity and beauty and, 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 and definition of life. In fact, the doe and the deer, again, looking in nature, seeing what is graceful and what is beautiful, esteems women. So we don't have, on one side, in Proverbs 5, just prostitutes, and on the other side, an objectified woman. It is much more complex than that. We see that basically for this young man, his whole world is made up of these two paths that are in front of him. And there is this one path with this strange woman who will show up in a lot of different ways, who is there to entice and to pull away from this other way of living. This other way of living that encapsulates this this wife and this marriage, this context of husband and wife. And it is it is it's a beautiful, true um, teaching. I would argue this, there's, uh, that, that the same teaching would apply if it was a woman writing about men to her daughter. That there are the kind of men in this world, and there's these kinds of traps that come with masculinity. In fact, I would argue that men over history have been much more dangerous than any woman has been to a man. Men have been much more dangerous to women. And so to warn the, the daughter of this kind of man and this kind of relationship and this kind of dynamic and rather point them to something more beautiful, something more healthy, something more created by God. You see how this can work both ways. So this morning I'm going to preach and we're going to look at some specific parts of this text and we're going to let this text teach. And I'll confess to you, I'm a man and I'm a husband and the text is written from a male perspective, but I believe that everything that I am going to say has a mutuality to it and a truth to it. And so with that in mind, let's jump into it. The very structure of the proverb has an introduction, we read it, an appeal to listen, and then there's two teachings. There's a teaching about this strange woman And then there's a teaching about the wife. The strange woman is the woman who leads to destruction, who leads to being unwise, who who leads to a a dark road, a dark future. The wife is the place that leads to fulfillment and to passion and to wisdom. And then there's a conclusion that I read saying, you know, we've talked about these women and your choice. There's something bigger than all of this named God, and he is watching all of it. So I warn you how you live and the road that you choose will be seen by God, and at the end you will be judged. It's fairly strong teaching. There's a juxtaposition between wise and unwise, between destruction and joy, between a relationship that is marked by sexual temptation on one side, and the other one is marked by sexual fulfillment in the context of marriage on the other. If we were to rename this proverb the other way, I wonder if we would call it the, uh, the husband and then the um, insecure man or the jerk. Or, and I stopped doing those because every 
thing I came up with, I, I'm guilty of, and I didn't, I, that felt like a conflict. So. so this proverb warns of the destruction found in the strange woman, and the teacher moves to focus where fulfillment, wisdom, and life are to be found. From these verses, I'll suggest to you that there's just three, three elements to biblical marriage that we ought to think about. And the first one is this. The first thing is fidelity. Listen to verse 15 again. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. Previously in the proverb, the focus has been on this strange woman. And what we learn is this. Earlier in the proverb, we learned that temptation is very real. In fact, it says that this woman, her lips drip with honey. They draw in. So we learn temptation is real. We learn that attraction can be dangerous. So much so that the teacher says, keep a far path from her and do not go near the door of her house. Which has two meanings. Her physical house and then her body as a house. And we find out from the proverb previously that consequences of falling to this temptation, falling to this attraction are a reality. And it says this, it says, at the end, your body will groan when your flesh and body are spent. This way of living leads to destruction. So when we see this uh, text that says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well, we should never be surprised that our human nature is one in which temptation and attraction and enticement to find others than our own are is just part of life. It means that I, Jeff Masich, married almost 14 years, married to an incredibly beautiful woman, both inside and out, that as I go about living my life, I notice that there are other beautiful women in this world. I ought not be surprised by that. If that was not the case, then we didn't need the first part of the proverb. There's no need to talk about the strange woman if we're just able to focus on our wife of youth. But there's this strong teaching and this strong comparison saying this is the way I want you to live, but this is going to entice you. Lust promises something that it can't deliver. And we will always be drawn and notice and be curious as to others that are not our own. And there are consequences for that kind of living. That's what the proverb teaches. So when the proverb says, drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well, against the, the personification of, of a woman in this water, commitment to your own spouse, to your own relationship, this countercultural spiritual image, there's something different happening here. Instead of being enticed by lips, by words, by body, this proverb demands a commitment to your own cistern, to your own well, and juxtaposes that image to the streets and to the public squares. And finishes with something, let them be, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with anyone. Shared with strangers. You're following this, right? Call it monogamy, fidelity, faithfulness, marriage. Biblical marriage is marked and built upon the vow to remain true and honest and committed to one's spouse. But this is a challenge for us today because infidelity is commonplace. And it's not just commonplace outside of the church. 
Friends, I've been alive much too long to see the pain and the anguish and the destruction that infidelity has had in the lives of people in this church and in church in general in the Christian community. We, we have an entire segment in our culture committed to celebrating infidelity. There are companies and websites that claim a promise for a monthly fee they will help you find someone to have an affair with. There are movies that celebrate infidelity. There are television shows that that are centered around the idea that husbands and wives are cheaters and and we're going to go find them. It is everywhere around us. In fact, I remember reading an article not too long ago. It was on a Valentine's Day. And it was a love story, just a general love story, a very popular, respected website. It was just sharing people's love stories. And the love story of this couple was fascinating to me because it turns out that after 30 years after high school, with the 30-year high school reunion coming up, these two people who dated in high school met each other on Facebook. They kept a casual conversation. And when they saw each other at the high school reunion, they knew they were supposed to be together. It's beautiful, right? Until you find out that they were both married at the time. And that was a throwaway line in the article. As if it's just, this is just how life works. So after 30 years of not being together, we're just going to leave everything and start something different with one another. And I, I think about how the story just was not even conscious of any kind of like pain or difficulty or destruction that comes with choices like that or the realities like that. We live at a time where this infidelity is so happenstance. And it's so painful and it's so difficult. I believe this. I believe God redeems it and restores it and can take something broken and fix it and we'll talk about that in a moment. And I've seen that with my own eyes even here. See, for that story I referenced, it started with a very simple conversation on Facebook. Oftentimes, I believe infidelity is very tricky. It starts with something simple, with a look. Earlier in the proverb, it talks about the lips as honey or a glance from afar. So often, something so innocent. For some of us, we have such this extreme context, right, that there's, there's like, I'm, I'm committed and then I'm not committed. And yet, I think the proverb teaches what all of us who have seen time and time again. There is a way, a road to destruction that starts out very innocent or can feel innocent, and at the end, it's not. And I want to encourage you this, men and women in this room, if something that seems simple, simple conversation, simple reunion, simple connection... If your heart and your mind and your body are getting excited about something that's supposed to be simple and innocent, I encourage you to run. As the proverb encourages you to run. Because that is the beginning. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 5.20, You've heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So sometimes our infidelity doesn't necessarily show up in a physical relationship where we're touching, kissing, connecting, and being intimate with somebody. Our infidelity can be an emotional connection. It can be an addiction that we have to to even people who aren't even really human, but an addiction we have to to images and to internet and to things like that. This 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 is a road to destruction. And Proverbs 5 teaches us that a biblical marriage is marked by fidelity. This is the way of life, this is the way of fulfillment, and this is the way of joy. 
Second thing we read in this proverb is passion. May your fountain be blessed. And may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. Why, my son, be intoxicated with another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? This is clear imagery that communicates to the physical and sexual relationship between husband and wife. When I was in seventh grade, I, I, I remember going to a youth rally. I didn't grow up in church, but I started getting hooked around middle school. And we went to this conference where the whole point of the conference was for us, for these teenagers, we're going to make a commitment to sexual purity. We're going to make a commitment that we are not going to have sex until we're married. And for making that commitment, they had a deal for us. I could get my very own Bible. I still don't know how that worked. Like I could get, and this is it, this is the Bible I got, the student Bible. So if I say I'm not going to have sex till I'm married, I can get this? we got to get those marketing people, like, here. <laughs> the point is this, is throughout my life, growing up in church, growing up in youth group, I, it was very clear, there was one story that was very clear, was that in its optimum, in God's design, I and others are to wait until married to begin a sexual relationship. And until then, God doesn't want that. That is the message we give our young people all the time. And it's a good message. It only leaves out something like, well, what is it when it comes? We don't offer any kind of other narrative most of the time. We just tell them to wait. And that someday when you're married, you can. And until then, media, movies... Locker rooms, friendship, Facebook, everybody else gets to tell them what they're missing. Because the church, we tend to be quiet on this. We don't pick up the verses that talk about enjoying your wife's body. We typically are fairly silent on this. And what I wasn't and what our kids are not supposed to do, in fact, not just our kids, all of us who are unmarried, it's less clear on what it's supposed to be and what sexual intimacy is to be. And friends, at times I feel like it doesn't seem like we offer much and that everybody else gets to take the tagline of passion and pleasure when it belongs in God's creation and how he made us. And so it sends this huge, weird message to kids and to, to those of us trying to follow Jesus that on one side is pleasure and passion and on the other side is marriage. It's so messed up. That is so wrong. So I think we have two narratives we teach. One is this. I think most of the time when we talk about sex, we talk about procreation. We, we talk about that in Genesis, God created Adam and Eve, and they're to be fruitful and to multiply, and that, that feels so technical to me sometimes, like, like crop planting. <laughs> Friends, Proverbs 5 is not about procreation. Proverbs 5 is about pleasure and passion. The fountain to be blessed isn't about having more kids. The admonishment in there is to enjoy the wife of your youth. I think about the guy sitting with me at swimming who's been married to his wife for 60 years and he still is moved by her beauty. 
It's a command to those of us who have been married a long time that I know life gets difficult. I know everything, that the passion that used to be. Remember when you first fell in love. Remember the excitement of getting married. Remember, remember your youth. Friends, biblical marriage isn't just one in which we have these lifelong commitments of fidelity without any passion. But frankly, if we're honest, most of us can be in a marriage that, yes, we're committed to each other, yes, we are there, but but at the end of the day, the passion is not there. And the pleasure is not there. Uh, Pastor Brian Luritz spoke about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago. The temptation, I think, for us is to be so focused on our kids that somehow the very husband and wife relationship and the beauty of that and the passion and the pleasure and the commitment, that somehow gets sidelined for 18 years and all of a sudden kids go off or they leave our house and we look at each other and we're like, who are you? I've seen it. So it's important to know that the narrative of procreation is true, that's part of our call as followers of Jesus, but this is not that. This is a narrative of pleasure and passion, and all too often the narrative we give, as I've referenced, is just kind of silence on the issue. When, I, when Jenny and I were engaged, we, we got married here at Lake Avenue, and we have this incredible pre-married uh, class that we went through. And I was blown away because we, we had been around church, we'd been around, we know the commitment we want to make, we want to do all these things. Nobody's ever talked to us about sex. Nobody's ever talked to us about that part of our relationship. And then all of a sudden we come to Lake Avenue and I figure out that the leading experts, like the, the people who do this for a living, the Christian sex therapists are like in our church, the penners. And I remember getting this book called Getting Your Sex Life Off to the Great Start. And I was like... I'm right. I looked at Jenny. I'm like, let's just go to Vegas now. Like, how many, how many more months do we have? We can, let's just get out of here. Because it was finally a voice. It was people who loved Jesus and who said, oh, there's this part of your life that is really, really important. It's so important that there's 240 pages of information about it. So I went from nothing to 240 pages and it changed our life. It changed our mission as a couple. So that next summer, we had been married. We'd been married about eight months and we were working at Forest Home. We were, I was the junior high director there and Jenny and I had been married eight months and that summer, there was about 200 people on summer staff at the time at Forest Home. We only knew about 20 or 30 of them that worked with us. But there was this unusual amount of like 21-year-olds getting married and engaged or in very serious relationships. So Jenny and I kind of heard the buzz and then... What ended up happening in the course of that summer is on Sunday night, it was when uh, McDonald's had 29-cent cheeseburgers on Sunday night, people would start radioing around Forest Home, putting in their cheeseburger order, because they knew once all the campers went down and everything was clear, they were coming to junior high camp to talk about sex with Jeff and Jenny. And we would eat cheeseburgers, and we would go through this book with people. And by the end, we probably had 80 different people, people in relationships, people not in relationships, because they had grown up in church, they'd been around church long enough, and nobody said anything to them about pleasure, about passion, about breaking this thing down, and what a biblical marriage looks like. Friends, the narrative of silence and privacy, I get that, and I understand why we are what we are. But it's so fascinating to me that we start speaking up and start getting really loud about other people's sex lives and we don't offer anything proactive about what a biblical sexual relationship is to look like.
Brian said something a couple of weeks ago that we kind of giggled at because we do it all the time in our house. I tell my boys all the time that I love their mom way more than I love them. And that mommy gets longer kisses and you don't get to kiss mommy like daddy kisses mommy. I grew up in a house with no passion and I grew up in a house that was wrecked by infidelity. And we're a house that takes the Bible seriously. What are we supposed to offer our boys? Marriage, a marriage that's proactively about the things that God is about. Not just a, a, a commitment to each other, like a contract we're just kind of waiting out, but one that is marked by our commitment to each other and our passion and joy to be in love with each other. Note the order we see in this proverb, because again, I think it's countercultural to what we have. We see this admonishment to fidelity and passion follows. Unfortunately, I think the leading narrative, even in church, can be, if the passion's not there, that's our license to break the commitment. The two weave hand in hand. But where there is a passionless marriage, chances are there's some kind of infidelity somewhere, even infidelity of mind, infidelity, emotional connection not there, lacking, connected to something or someone else. Fidelity and passion. Friends, biblical marriage is one that is passionate. And it seeks pleasure. The words don't get more clear than what we read in the proverb. In fact, when it says intoxicated, I love this, it was in a lot of the commentaries. The word used for intoxicated, so it says that it puts two, two comparisons next to each other. It says, may you always be intoxicated with your, with your wife, and why would you be intoxicated for another man's wife? The word means, like, it, it's pretty graphic. It means, may you be so passionately connected to your spouse that when you're finished being intimate, may you stumble away. Nothing to do with procreation. Everything to do with pleasure. May we be the kind of church's marriages where we are so desperately in love with our spouse that we stumble away because that experience was so incredible. So we have fidelity, we have passion, and then finally we have what we'll call guidance. I'm going to be a little bit brief here. But remember that this letter is written from a father to his son, and I see some guidance showing up two ways in the text. One is this is that we have a responsibility, just as the Father did in Proverbs 5, to speak very bluntly and truthfully to the younger generations about what real biblical sexuality and what real biblical marriage is. And we do that. I can assure you we do that at this church. I'll tell you, as a father, it kind of convicts me a little bit more. Because this isn't the priest writing to the young men in the church. This is the father speaking bluntly and clearly. And so often when it comes to things like sexuality and sexual relationships, these are things that we're just not comfortable talking about. And we really hope other people can take care of that. So we really lean on the church to do that because it's scary for us. And friends, just as a parent, I'm super convicted to be a very honest father with my boys as they grow up about these things and this reality, being as clear as the psalmist, as the proverb writer is, in looking at these two paths and how it plays out. But more so than our guidance to the younger generation, I think the truth is that biblical marriage needs guidance from others all the time. 
I mean, we say that often at Lake Avenue Church, that our three essential connections are worship, community, and service. And when we talk about community, we talk about the idea that we are not built and created to live our spiritual life in isolation. That's why we talk about things like small groups and we encourage you to find groups of people you can walk life with. But for some reason, and I've seen this time and time and time again in the church, when it comes to marriage relationships, you can be in a small group, you can be serving somewhere, you can have a lot of intimate relationships in the church and nobody has any clue that your marriage is in the pits. And all of a sudden, something comes to the light where you're sharing a conclusion about your marriage rather than bringing anybody into the process of what's going on in your marriage. Friends, our marriages and married life is one that is consistent with our following Jesus. We are not meant to do it alone. We are meant to walk with others. We are meant to be vulnerable. We are meant to lean on a community in times of crisis. I'm no expert, but I've been a pastor a long time, and it seems to me that most of the time when people come to me for either prayer or advice about something going on in their marriage, it can back up to two main issues. One, we're not connecting, or there's been an affair, or there's some kind of infidelity, or our marriage is just passionless, and we live a contract with each other. We don't have pleasure and joy like we used to. Friends, if you find yourselves in some kind of crisis like that, the Bible speaks to that and the community of faith at Lake Avenue Church speaks to that. That we want to be a place that says biblical marriage requires guidance. And I'm not, I know I'm elevated here and I have a podium. My marriage needs guidance. I am an incredibly difficult person to be married to. And I mean that. And if it not for people and people in this church who not just pray for us, but talk to us about our marriage, I mean, we'd have no hope. Biblical marriage is incredibly difficult. Do you you need help? On July 17th and 18th, I want to give you two two opportunities. We have a marriage prep and tune-up seminar on the 17th and 18th of July. We run these all the time. I think it would be so marvelous if there was some vulnerability in our church and you find yourself in a passionless marriage, even if you've been married 30, 40 years, to say, we could use a tune-up too. That's not just for those getting engaged or those engaged. This is for everybody. So I point you to that time to come and get a tune-up in your marriage. Be reminded of the kind of life that God calls you to and the kind of marriage he calls us to. But then there's another marvelous thing that has emerged in this church in a beautiful way. And and there is, if you are in what we'll call crisis, like your marriage is just hanging on for whatever reason, or you find it incredibly difficult, there have been a group of people committed for over two years to get the training and and to be equipped to walk with couples in marital crisis. And the percentage, there's other churches that do this, one church in particular, the percentages of of people saying our marriage was in the dumps to our marriage is thriving is something crazy, like over 90%. And there are couples in this church trained and ready to go to say, hey, you husband and wife, marriage isn't good right now, let us walk with you, trust us, submit to this process, and there's a 90% success rate. And we'll talk after the service if that connects with where you're at in your marriage 
We want, to, we want to get your information and get you connected because there are people ready to go, to walk with. Because biblical marriage, yes, it's about fidelity. Yes, it's about passion. Yes, it's about forgiveness. Yes, it's about grace. Yes, it's about beauty. It's lots of things. But it is one that requires guidance. So as I close, I've been asked a lot in the last week, what do I what do I, Jeff Masich, think about all this marriage conversation that's happening in our country and in our culture? <clears throat> I'm just going to tell you the truth. I am disappointed and I am ashamed that somehow biblical marriage, everything that the Bible speaks about in marriage, I'm ashamed and disappointed that it has been reduced down to a sentence that says marriage is a man and a woman. I believe it is. But that's not all it is. Biblical marriage, that's a descriptor of something. Biblical marriage is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly life-giving. It's incredibly passionate. It's incredibly beautiful. And somehow the main message that we have supplied to the rest of the world is that biblical Christian marriage stops, begins, and ends with one man and one woman. We've reduced the whole scriptures down to one Twitter-sized line, and it grieves me. Because, friends, biblical marriage is so much more. Is all that we're offering the world a man and a woman? Friends, men and women in the state of marriage is in crisis at some level. There are passionless marriages that mark male and female marriages. There's infidelity that runs wild in male and female marriages. Surely biblical marriage was chosen by God to do something beautiful and wonderful to the rest of the world. When I read the pages of scripture, I see this relationship of husband and wife and and this family that emerges and God does something beautiful and he says, the way this relationship works this commitment to one another, the way forgiveness lives in this relationship, the way passion lives in this relationship, this relationship does something so dramatically different from the rest of the world so that when people see it, they see God. And friends, I think it's time for us at Lake Avenue Church to work on our marriages because that is our witness to the world of who God is. And that relationship rooted in a commitment to God and to one another, rooted in in the idea of passion and pleasure, rooted in the idea of forgiveness and, and grace, this is what we offer a world that's looking for what real love looks like. And it surely says something about God. I venture to say that a very small percentage of, of marriages meet the criteria, passion, and mission that God has intended marriage to be. And my prayer is may that not be true for us. May we be a church that is full of commitment, full of passion, full of humility and guidance. And may the Lord strengthen each one of our marriages to demonstrate to the world who God is. Join me in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for Proverbs 5. Thank you for the numerous biblical texts that teach us what marriage is. Thank you for the truth of your scripture that calls out the temptation that each one of us face in this life. I pray for this church that we would be able to 
face temptation this week, that we would be the kind of people who understand what is good and what is wise and what brings life, and may we have the courage to trust you and follow you down that road. God, I pray for those in this room who, who've just gotten married and the passion is there and the commitment is there. May they be able to maintain that in very real ways for very many years, God. We pray that they, these marriages would be the one that would demonstrate who you are to this world. For those in this church whose marriages are in a tough spot, we pray. And we recognize that your power is strong enough to come into the darkest, most hopeless places in our life and it can bring new life. And so we pray that over the marriages that, that are struggling this morning. And we pray that, God, that the passion and the pleasure of the married relationship would be reinvigorated in the lives of those in this church this day. And God, I pray for those who need guidance. We pray that you would move them to courage. And we pray for great hope and great healing. All this, God, not just so that we can have a better society. All this because we want to honor you. All this because we want to be found obedient to you. All this because you have work for us to do and a world you want us to win for Jesus Christ. And we pray that we will do that in all of our lives, married or not, in Jesus' name. Amen.